Justice Kennedy delivered the opinion of the court. Federal law prohibits corporations and unions from using their general treasury funds to make independent expenditures for speech defined as an electioneering communication or for speech expressly advocating the election or defeat of a candidate. Limits on electioneering communications were upheld in McConnell v. Federal Election Commission, 2003. The holding of McConnell rested to a large extent on an earlier case, Austin v. Michigan Chamber of Commerce, 1990. Austin had held that political speech may be banned based on the speaker's corporate identity. In this case, we are asked to reconsider Austin and, in effect, McConnell. It has been noted that Austin was a significant departure from ancient First Amendment principles. We agree with that conclusion and hold that stare decisis does not compel the continued acceptance of Austin. The government may regulate corporate political speech through disclaimer and disclosure requirements, but it may not suppress that speech altogether. We turn to the case now before us. Part 1 Section A Citizens United is a nonprofit corporation. It brought this action in the United States District Court for the District of Columbia. A three-judge court later convened to hear the cause. The resulting judgment gives rise to this appeal. Citizens United has an annual budget of about $12 million. Most of its funds are from donations by individuals, but in addition, it accepts a small portion of its funds from for-profit corporations. In January 2008, Citizens United released a film entitled Hillary, the Movie. We refer to the film as Hillary. It is a 90-minute documentary about then-Senator Hillary Clinton, who was a candidate in the Democratic Party's 2008 presidential primary elections. Hillary mentions Senator Clinton by name and depicts interviews with political commentators and other persons, most of them quite critical of Senator Clinton. Hillary was released in theaters and on DVD, but Citizens United wanted to increase distribution by making it available through video on demand. Video on demand allows digital cable subscribers to select programming from various menus, including movies, television shows, sports, news, and music. The viewer can watch the program at any time and can elect to rewind or pause the program. In December 2007, a cable company offered for a payment of $1.2 million to make Hillary available on a video-on-demand channel called Elections 08. 
Some video on-demand services require viewers to pay a small fee to view a selected program. But here, the proposal was to make Hillary available to viewers free of charge. To implement the proposal, Citizens United was prepared to pay for the video on-demand, and to promote the film, it produced two 10-second ads and one 30-second ad for Hillary. Each ad includes a short and, in our view, pejorative statement about Senator Clinton, followed by the name of the movie and the movie's website address. Citizens United desired to promote the video-on-demand offering by running advertisements on broadcast and cable television. Section B Before the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act of 2002, BICRA, federal law prohibited and still does prohibit corporations and unions from using general treasury funds to make direct contributions to candidates or independent expenditures that expressly advocate the election or defeat of a candidate through any form of media in connection with certain qualified federal elections. BICRA Section 203 amended Section 441B to prohibit any electioneering communication as well. An electioneering communication is defined as any broadcast, cable, or satellite communication that refers to a clearly identified candidate for federal office and is made within 30 days of a primary or 60 days of a general election. The Federal Election Commission, FEC's, regulations further define an electioneering communication as a communication that is publicly distributed. In the case of a candidate for nomination for president, publicly distributed means that the communication can be received by 50,000 or more persons in a state where a primary election is being held within 30 days. Corporations and unions are barred from using their general treasury funds for express advocacy or electioneering communications. They may establish, however, a separate segregated fund known as a Political Action Committee, or PAC, for these purposes. The monies received by the segregated fund are limited to donations from stockholders and employees of the corporation, or, in the case of unions, members of the union. Section C. Citizens United wanted to make Hillary available through on-demand within 30 days of the 2008 primary elections. It feared, however, that both the film and the ads would be covered by Section 441B's ban on corporate-funded independent expenditures, thus subjecting the corporation to civil and criminal penalties under Section 437G. In December 2007, Citizens United sought declaratory and injunctive relief against the FEC, 
it argued that, one, Section 441B is unconstitutional as applied to Hillary, and two, BICRA's disclaimer and disclosure requirements, BICRA Sections 201 and 311, are unconstitutional as applied to Hillary and to the three ads for the movie. The district court denied Citizens United's motion for a preliminary injunction and then granted the FEC's motion for summary judgment. The court held that Section 441B was facially constitutional under McConnell and that Section 441B was constitutional as applied to Hillary because it was susceptible of no other interpretation than to inform the electorate that Senator Clinton is unfit for office, that the United States would be a dangerous place in a President Hillary Clinton world, and that viewers should vote against her. The court also rejected Citizens United's challenge to Bikra's disclaimer and disclosure requirements. It noted that the Supreme Court has written approvingly of disclosure provisions triggered by political speech, even though the speech itself was constitutionally protected under the First Amendment. We noted probable jurisdiction. The case was re-argued in this court after the court asked the parties to file supplemental briefs addressing whether we should overrule either or both Austin and part of McConnell which addresses the facial validity of 2 U.S.C. Section 441B. Part 2 Before considering whether Austin should be overruled, we first address whether Citizens United's claim that Section 441B cannot be applied to Hillary may be resolved on other narrower grounds. Section A. Citizens United contends that Section 441B does not cover Hillary as a matter of statutory interpretation because the film does not qualify as an electioneering communication. Citizens United raises this issue for the first time before us but we consider the issue because it was addressed by the court below. Under the definition of electioneering communication, the video on demand showing of Hillary on cable television would have been a cable communication that referred to a clearly identified candidate for federal office, and that was made within 30 days of a primary election. Citizens United, however, argues that Hillary was not publicly distributed because a single video-on-demand transmission is sent only to a requesting cable converter box, and each separate transmission, in most instances, will be seen by just one household, not 50,000 or more persons. This argument ignores the regulation's instruction on how to determine whether a cable transmission can be received by 50,000 or more persons. 
The regulation provides that the number of people who can receive a cable transmission is determined by the number of cable subscribers in the relevant area. Here, Citizens United wanted to use a cable video-on-demand system that had 34.5 million subscribers nationwide. Thus, Hillary could have been received by 50,000 persons or more. One Amici brief asks us, alternatively, to construe the condition that the communication can be received by 50,000 or more persons, to require a plausible likelihood that the communication will be viewed by 50,000 or more potential viewers, as opposed to requiring only that the communication is technologically capable of being seen by that many people. Whether the population and demographic statistics in a proposed viewing area consisted of 50,000 registered voters, but not infants, preteens, or otherwise electorally ineligible recipients, would be a required determination subject to judicial challenge and review, in any case where the issue was in doubt. In our view, the statute cannot be saved by limiting the reach of 2 U.S.C. Section 441b through this suggested interpretation. In addition to the costs and burdens of litigation, this result would require a calculation as to the number of people a particular communication is likely to reach, with an inaccurate estimate potentially subjecting the speaker to criminal sanctions. The First Amendment does not permit laws that force speakers to retain a campaign finance attorney, conduct demographic marketing research, or seek declaratory rulings before discussing the most salient political issues of our day. Prolix laws chill speech for the same reason that vague laws chill speech. People of common intelligence must necessarily guess at the law's meaning and differ as to its application. The government may not render a ban on political speech constitutional by carving out a limited exemption through an amorphous regulatory interpretation. We must reject the approach suggested by the Amici. Section B. Section 441B covers Hillary. Citizens United next argues that Section 441B may not be applied to Hillary under the approach taken in Wisconsin Right to Life, WRTL. McConnell decided that Section 441B B. 2's definition of an electioneering communication was facially constitutional insofar as it restricted speech that was the functional equivalent of express advocacy for or against a specific candidate. WRTL then found an unconstitutional application of Section 441B 
where the speech was not express advocacy or its functional equivalent. As explained by the Chief Justice's controlling opinion in WRTL, the functional equivalent test is objective. A court should find that a communication is the functional equivalent of express advocacy only if it is susceptible of no reasonable interpretation other than as an appeal to vote for or against a specific candidate. Under this test, Hillary is equivalent to express advocacy. The movie, in essence, is a feature-length negative advertisement that urges viewers to vote against Senator Clinton for president. In light of historical footage, interviews with persons critical of her, and voiceover narration, the film would be understood by most viewers as an extended criticism of Senator Clinton's character and her fitness for the office of the presidency. The narrative may contain more suggestions and arguments than facts, but there is little doubt that the thesis of the film is that she is unfit for the presidency. The movie concentrates on alleged wrongdoing during the Clinton administration, Senator Clinton's qualifications and fitness for office, and policies the commentators predict she would pursue if elected president. It calls Senator Clinton Machiavellian and asked whether she is the most qualified to hit the ground running if elected president. The narrator reminds viewers that Americans have never been keen on dynasties and that a vote for Hillary is a vote to continue 20 years of a Bush or Clinton in the White House. Citizens United argues that Hillary is just a documentary film that examines certain historical events. We disagree. The movie's consistent emphasis is on the relevance of these events to Senator Clinton's candidacy for president. The narrator begins by asking, could Senator Clinton become the first female president in the history of the United States? And the narrator reiterates the movie's message in his closing line. Finally, before America decides on our next president, voters should need no reminders of what's at stake, the well-being and prosperity of our nation. As the district court found, there is no reasonable interpretation of Hillary other than as an appeal to vote against Senator Clinton. Under the standard stated in McConnell and further elaborated in WRTL, the film qualifies as the functional equivalent of express advocacy. Section C Citizens United further contends that Section 441B should be invalidated as applied to movies shown through video on demand, arguing that this delivery system has a lower risk of distorting the political process than do television ads. 
on what we might call conventional television, advertising spots reach viewers who have chosen a channel or program for reasons unrelated to the advertising. With video on demand, by contrast, the viewer selects a program after taking a series of affirmative steps, subscribing to cable, navigating through various menus, and selecting the program. While some means of communication may be less effective than others at influencing the public in different contexts, any effort by the judiciary to decide which means of communications are to be preferred for the particular type of message and speaker would raise questions as to the court's own lawful authority. Substantial questions would arise if courts were to begin saying what means of speech should be preferred or disfavored. And in all events, those differentiations might soon prove to be irrelevant or outdated by technologies that are in rapid flux. Courts, too, are bound by the First Amendment. We must decline to draw and then redraw constitutional lines based on the particular media or technology used to disseminate political speech from a particular speaker. It must be noted, moreover, that this undertaking would require substantial litigation over an extended time, all to interpret a law that, beyond doubt, discloses serious First Amendment flaws. The interpretive process itself would create an inevitable, pervasive, and serious risk of chilling protected speech pending the drawing of fine distinctions that in the end would themselves be questionable. First Amendment standards, however, must give the benefit of any doubt to protecting rather than stifling speech. Section D. Citizens United also asks us to carve out an exception to Section 441B's expenditure ban for nonprofit corporate political speech funded overwhelmingly by individuals. As an alternative to reconsidering Austin, the government also seems to prefer this approach. This line of analysis, however, would be unavailing. In MCFL, the court found unconstitutional Section 441B's restrictions on corporate expenditures as applied to nonprofit corporations that were formed for the sole purpose of promoting political ideas, did not engage in business activities, and did not accept contributions from for-profit corporations or labor unions. BICRA's so-called Wellstone Amendment applied Section 441B's expenditure ban to all nonprofit corporations. McConnell then interpreted the Wellstone Amendment to retain the MCFL exemption 
to Section 441B's expenditure prohibition. Citizens United does not qualify for the MCFL exemption, however, since some funds used to make the movie were donations from for-profit corporations. The government suggests we could find Bikra's Wellstone Amendment unconstitutional, sever it from the statute, and hold that Citizens United's speech is exempt from Section 441B's ban under Bikra's Snow-Jeffords Amendment. The Snow-Jeffords Amendment operates as a backup provision that only takes effect if the Wellstone Amendment is invalidated. The Snow-Jeffords Amendment would exempt from Section 441B's expenditure ban the political speech of certain nonprofit corporations if the speech were funded exclusively by individual donors and the funds were maintained in a segregated account. Citizens United would not qualify for the Snow-Jeffords exemption under its terms as written because Hillary was funded in part with donations from for-profit corporations. Consequently, to hold for Citizens United on this argument, the court would be required to revise the text of MCFL, sever Bikra's Wellstone Amendment, and ignore the plain text of Bikra's Snow-Jeffords Amendment. If the court decided to create a de minimis exception to MCFL or the Snow-Jeffords Amendment, the result would be to allow for-profit corporate general treasury funds to be spent for independent expenditures that support candidates. There is no principled basis for doing this without rewriting Austin's holding that the government can restrict corporate independent expenditures for political speech. Though it is true that the court should construe statutes as necessary to avoid constitutional questions, the series of steps suggested would be difficult to take in view of the language of the statute. In addition to those difficulties, the government's suggestion is troubling for still another reason. The government does not say that it agrees with the interpretation it wants us to consider. Presumably, it would find textual difficulties in this approach, too. The government, like any party, can make arguments in the alternative, but it ought to say if there is merit to an alternative proposal instead of merely suggesting it. This is especially true for the context of the First Amendment. As the government stated, this case would require a remand to apply a de minimis standard. Applying this standard would thus require case-by-case -case determinations. But archetypal political speech would be chilled in the meantime. First Amendment freedoms need breathing space to survive. We decline to adopt 
an interpretation that requires intricate case-by-case determinations to verify whether political speech is banned, especially if we are convinced that, in the end, this corporation has a constitutional right to speak on this subject. Section E. As the foregoing analysis confirms, the court cannot resolve this case on a narrower ground without chilling political speech, speech that is central to the meaning and purpose of the First Amendment. It is not judicial restraint to accept an unsound, narrow argument, just so the court can avoid another argument with broader implications. Indeed, a court would be remiss in performing its duties were it to accept an unsound principle merely to avoid the necessity of making a broader ruling. Here, the lack of a valid basis for an alternative ruling requires full consideration of the continuing effect of the speech suppression upheld in Austin. Citizens United stipulated to dismissing count five of its complaint, which raised a facial challenge to Section 441B, even though count three raised an as-applied challenge. The government argues that Citizens United waived its challenge to Austin by dismissing count five. We disagree. First, even if a party could somehow waive a facial challenge while preserving an as-applied challenge, that would not prevent the court from reconsidering Austin or addressing the facial validity of Section 441B in this case. Our practice permits review of an issue not pressed below so long as it has been passed upon. And here, the district court addressed Citizens United's facial challenge. In rejecting the claim, it noted that it would have to overrule McConnell for Citizens United to prevail on its facial challenge, and that only the Supreme Court may overrule its decisions. The district court did not provide much analysis regarding the facial challenge because it could not ignore the controlling Supreme Court decisions in Austin or McConnell. Even so, the district court did pass upon the issue. Furthermore, the district court's later opinion, which granted the FEC summary judgment, was based on the reasoning of its prior opinion which included the discussion of the facial challenge. After the district court addressed the facial validity of the statute, Citizens United raised its challenge to Austin in this court. In these circumstances, it is necessary to consider Citizens United's challenge to Austin and the facial validity of Section 441B's expenditure ban. Third, the distinction between facial and as-applied challenges 
is not so well defined that it has some automatic effect or that it must always control the pleadings and disposition in every case involving a constitutional challenge. The distinction is both instructive and necessary, for it goes to the breadth of the remedy employed by the court, not what must be pleaded in a complaint. The parties cannot enter into a stipulation that prevents the court from considering certain remedies if those remedies are necessary to resolve a claim that has been preserved. Citizens United has preserved its First Amendment challenge to Section 441B as applied to the facts of its case. And, given all the circumstances, we cannot easily address that issue without assuming a premise. The permissibility of restricting corporate political speech. That is itself in doubt. As our request for supplemental briefing implied, Citizens United's claim implicates the validity of Austin, which in turn implicates the facial validity of Section 441B. When the statute now at issue came before the court in McConnell, both the majority and the dissenting opinions considered the question of its facial validity. The holding and validity of Austin were essential to the reasoning of the McConnell majority opinion, which upheld Bikra's extension of Section 441B. McConnell permitted federal felony punishment for speech by all corporations, including nonprofit ones, that speak on prohibited subjects shortly before federal elections. Four members of the McConnell Court would have overruled Austin, including Chief Justice Rehnquist, who had joined the court's opinion in Austin, but reconsidered that conclusion. That inquiry into the facial validity of the statute was facilitated by the extensive record, which was over 100,000 pages long, made in the three-judge district court. It is not the case, then, that the court today is premature in interpreting Section 441B on the basis of a factually bare-bones record. The McConnell majority considered whether the statute was facially invalid. An as-applied challenge was brought in Wisconsin Right to Life, Inc., the Federal Election Commission, 2006, and the court confirmed that the challenge could be maintained. Then in WRTL, the controlling opinion of the court not only entertained an as-applied challenge, but also sustained it. Three justices noted that they would continue to maintain the position that the record in McConnell demonstrated the invalidity of the act on its face. The controlling opinion in WRTL, which refrained from holding the statute invalid except as applied to the facts then before the court, was a careful attempt to accept the essential elements of the court's opinion in McConnell, while vindicating the First Amendment arguments 
made by the WRTL parties. As noted above, Citizens United's narrower arguments are not sustainable under a fair reading of the statute. In the exercise of its judicial responsibility, it is necessary then for the court to consider the facial validity of Section 441B. Any other course of decision would prolong the substantial nationwide chilling effect caused by Section 441B's prohibitions on corporate expenditures. Consideration of the facial validity of Section 441B is further supported by the following reasons. First is the uncertainty caused by the litigating position of the government. As discussed above, the government suggests as an alternative argument that an as-applied challenge might have merit. This argument proceeds on the premise that the nonprofit corporation involved here may have received only de minimis donations from for-profit corporations, and that some nonprofit corporations may be exempted from the operation of the statute. The government also suggests that an as-applied challenge to Section 441B's ban on books may be successful, although it would defend Section 441B's ban as applied to almost every other form of media, including pamphlets. The government thus, by its own position, contributes to the uncertainty that Section 441B causes. When the government holds out the possibility of ruling for Citizens United on a narrow ground, yet refrains from adopting that position, the added uncertainty demonstrates the necessity to address the question of statutory validity. Second, Substantial time would be required to bring clarity to the application of the statutory provision on these points in order to avoid any chilling effect caused by some improper interpretation. It is well known that the public begins to concentrate on elections only in the weeks immediately before they are held. There are short time frames in which speech can have influence. The need or relevance of the speech will often first be apparent at this stage in the campaign. The decision to speak is made in the heat of political campaigns, when speakers react to messages conveyed by others. A speaker's ability to engage in political speech that could have a chance of persuading voters is stifled if the speaker must first commence a protracted lawsuit. By the time the lawsuit concludes, the election will be over and the litigants, in most cases, will have neither the incentive nor perhaps the resources to carry on, even if they could establish that the case is not moot because the issue is capable of repetition yet evading review. Here, Citizens United decided to litigate its case to the end. Today, Citizens United finally learns, two years after the fact, 
whether it could have spoken during the 2008 presidential primary, long after the opportunity to persuade primary voters has passed. Third is the primary importance of speech itself to the integrity of the election process. As additional rules are created for regulating political speech, any speech arguably within their reach is chilled. Campaign finance regulations now impose unique and complex rules on 71 distinct entities. These entities are subject to separate rules for 33 different types of political speech. The FEC has adopted 568 pages of regulations, 1,278 pages of explanations and justifications for those regulations, and 1,771 advisory opinions since 1975. In fact, after this court in WRTL adopted an objective appeal-to-vote test for determining whether a communication was the functional equivalent of express advocacy, the FEC adopted a two-part 11-factor balancing test to implement WRTL's ruling. This regulatory scheme may not be a prior restraint on speech in the strict sense of that term, for prospective speakers are not compelled by law to seek an advisory opinion from the FEC before the speech takes place. As a practical matter, however, given the complexity of the regulations and the deference courts show to administrative determinations, a speaker who wants to avoid threats of criminal liability and the heavy costs of defending against FEC enforcement must ask a governmental agency for prior permission to speak. These onerous restrictions thus function as the equivalent of prior restraint by giving the FEC power analogous to licensing laws implemented in 16th and 17th century England. Laws and governmental practices of the sort that the First Amendment was drawn to prohibit. Because the FEC's business is to censor, there inheres the danger that it may well be less responsive than a court, part of an independent branch of government, to the constitutionally protected interests in free expression. When the FEC issues advisory opinions that prohibit speech, many persons rather than undertake the considerable burden and sometimes risk of vindicating their rights through case-by-case -case litigation will choose simply to abstain from protected speech, harming not only themselves but society as a whole which is deprived of an uninhibited marketplace of ideas. Consequently, the censor's determination may, in practice, be final. This is precisely what WRTL sought to avoid. WRTL said that First Amendment standards 
must eschew the open-ended rough-and-tumble of factors, which invites complex argument in a trial court and virtually inevitable appeal. Yet the FEC has created a regime that allows it to select what political speech is safe for public consumption by applying ambiguous tests. If parties want to avoid litigation and the possibility of civil and criminal penalties, they must either refrain from speaking or ask the FEC to issue an advisory opinion approving of the political speech in question. Government officials pore over each word of a text to see if, in their judgment, it accords with the 11-factor test they have promulgated. This is an unprecedented governmental intervention into the realm of speech. The ongoing chill upon speech that is beyond all doubt protected makes it necessary in this case to invoke the earlier precedents that a statute which chills speech can and must be invalidated where its facial invalidity has been demonstrated. For these reasons, we find it necessary to reconsider Austin. We've finished the first half of this opinion, but don't worry, the next episode will pick up exactly where this episode ended.